Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and we're recording a little bit late this week. Darcy, my co-host, is on board with this. She was ready to go, and I'm just telling you, she was all ready to go. It was me (laughs) that was delaying everything, so. Well, you got to go on a fun trip, apologies. Yeah, we went to Disney World in Florida, which was super interesting. Um, you, the weather you was, got lucky. The storm didn't hit you. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We were we traveled down the coast and we're outside of I think Palm Beach for a few days mm-hmm. and down on the, the ocean swimming and hanging out and it was kind of thunder and lightning at light late at night but not during the day. It was sunny and warm and beautiful during the day. So like we got to go out and enjoy mm. the beach and all the little stuff around that area. Mm-hmm. And we stayed at a resort in this place called Vero Beach, which was really beautiful. Mm-hmm. It was a it's a turtle beach type of a place, yeah. a turtle nesting area. We didn't see any turtles, which was kind of unfortunate. It probably would have been like the most awesome trip ever if we would have seen the baby <laughs> turtles. That would have been excellent. But um, the thing is, it was so hot. It was so ridiculously yeah. hot. And at that <laughs> uh, particular resort, you had to wear your face mask. Everywhere except in the pool area and when you're eating in the restaurants and mm-hmm. stuff. So, which wasn't too bad. Um, but the thing is, we got eaten alive. Like, I literally don't uh-huh. get bitten by anything. But I don't know what these things are. I heard they're called chiggers or, like, mites. Oh, is that is that just a southern thing? Chiggers? Yeah, they call them chiggers. And I looked it up online. Uh-huh. Yeah, they're little orange bugs. But they didn't look orange. They looked black. They were real, real small and they were oh. black. So I wasn't sure whether they were actually chiggers or whether they were something else, like maybe sand fleas. or. But we were at the pool area when they bit us. Nothing bit us when we were hmm. on the actual beach itself. Chiggers? I always would get them or knew about or was warned about getting them like at camp when I was in the woods Yeah, and they would always like bite you where like if you wore wore socks or it's shorts or something just like where the my elastic ankles. was on your yeah it was just yeah. around my ankles that's all and then I had a couple like on my hands and a little bit between my fingers but nothing else none like on my upper body none like on my arms mostly just 90% of it was like just my ankles and feet huh. and they're like these hard little red bumps that just mm-hmm. have, are still here. It's a week later and I still have them. They're still there. I, I remember being told when I was younger and like going to camp and stuff like that, that like clear nail polish. That's what somebody told would... me here too. But I mean, they told me that after I got bit. <laughs> so it really didn't make any difference. But then we spent the, the remainder of the vacation at Disney World, which was the last five weeks that we were there. And that was... I have to five tell weeks? you, uh, what? Five days. You said, but, <laughs> we spent the remainder like, of the vacation five five days. Long. Sorry, um, yeah. at Disney World, and I have to say it was literally one of the most miserable experiences of my entire life. Really? Because wearing a mask in heat like that, mm-hmm. uh, like I literally almost passed out multiple times mm-hmm. because it was just ridiculously hot, and the fact that you're breathing in that hot air just is absolutely atrociously miserable. So I get mm-hmm. it. People are probably going to be like, well, you just don't go. Don't go. Um, which is fine. But, like, the thing is, I, I'm just really not a fan of stopping my entire life for right. an indefinite period of time. Like, I get it. Like, if you if you feel unsafe, don't go out. Stay at home. We wore our masks. We practiced social yeah. distancing. We used hand. They had hand sanitizer. They had hand sanitizer stations throughout the park everywhere. 
Like, mm-hmm. at points during the ride, the beginning of the ride, the end of the ride, there were hand-washing stations everywhere. Multiple restaurants were closed. The park was operating at about 20% capacity. There were 6 to 10-foot line areas in between each passenger on the ride, so they really practiced that spacing, and then they shut down all the yeah. rides, like, every hour on the hour to deep-clean them. Oh, wow. And they just really were practicing a lot of different things to keep people safe and clean. And I think that people felt pretty safe there. Um, It was very uncomfortable. But I think that maybe just was a function of the fact that it is one of the hottest times of the year. And we were out there. And it was just like, I, I don't sweat very much but when I was out there I literally had sweat dripping down every part of my body like my socks were wet and my my sweat dripping down my legs so that was a little bit uncomfortable but the good thing is like once you get into the lines on the rides they're like inside most of them so it's like air conditioning Mm -hmm. and and it's like instant relief but got to spend quite a bit of time at the pool and made a friend of a little duck. It was a little teenage Aww. duck that just kept hanging out with me. And this, I think, because I had saltine crackers because <laughs> I wasn't feeling too hot. I literally had the worst heartburn I've ever had in my entire friggin' life during this trip. And it was like at, at certain points, and I don't know if you've ever had this before, but I was sitting at a table and it was probably 11, 12 o'clock at night. And mm-hmm. the bile or acid or whatever came up into the top of my throat and like out like I was going to throw up as I was sitting at the table and I had no um awareness that it was even happening until it was up and already like out almost and I I hate that feeling I tried to swallow it back down and like it was Uh like acid it hurt so bad and I couldn't breathe it was stuck there and I was sitting at this table and there's like 10 people around me at this table and they're all no one knows what's going on and I'm like choking and I'm like, I'm trying to get it back down and I'm like trying to clear my throat and I'm coughing and I'm, I can't breathe. It's just no air is getting into my lungs. And immediately I start Googling, can you die from acid reflux? And I'm like freaking out and I start going into shock. And of course, this, we're in this restaurant, it's freezing cold and I'm sitting at the table just shaking. My teeth are chattering. I'm shivering. I'm like, I'm going to die of acid reflux. Finally, the person next to me notices because Mike was on the other part of the table and he didn't was he, they were everybody was drinking heavily and eating chicken wings and whatnot. And they, the person next to me finally notices and she's like, oh, my God, are you OK? And they went up and they got me some Tums and some milk and some other different things <laughs> to try to, like, help with it. But it's like, I yeah. don't know, the last probably three or four days, it's been just awful. I have to sit sleep sitting up and it's just been just awful that just that reminded me not to like laugh while you're telling your story about how you're choking but it reminded me of do you remember slater's 50 50 in san diego yeah um so i was there with my friend kate and uh i had like a bite of like chicken sandwich and uh-huh. in my mouth and like the server came by and he was like how is everything and i think he made some kind of cheesy joke and i tried to like laugh to be polite but i had like a big piece of chicken in my mouth but like i Uh-oh. inhaled and like I started choking, like oh, I could no. not breathe. I was like, it was really actually kind How did of you scary. Get it out? And like I'm trying to like, just like Give swallow and just be like, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm cool, I'm cool. And then all of a sudden, like it got to the point, like I could breathe a little bit. And then it like I moved it enough to where it completely blocked my airway, and like it got real scary. And like my friend Kate got up, like another person at a different table got up. Like people were prepared to give me the Heimlich maneuver, maneuver because I didn't want to like spit out this piece of chicken in front of people. So I almost oh died God. out of like trying to be too polite. So I've That's definitely the been worst, there. <laughs> worst 
yeah. worst feeling in the whole freaking wide world. It, I hate it, that like, feeling. It, it, you have a moment where, like, the, the, the switch flips, and, like, you're like, oh, no, this is really scary now. You like, panic. Like, yeah. You either go into panic, and you're like, yeah. oh, f- <laughs> I cursed. Whoops. You go, oh, crap, I'm dead now. I have done that so many times. It's the worst. But... In any case, the trip was very nice on on the whole, and, like, the weather stayed pleasant, and we had the ability to go into the pool and Mm -hmm. spend some nice time enjoying just being away from home. Yeah. And please don't send us any complaint emails about how I should be quarantining at home, because everything is open. (laughs) They tell people they can go do stuff. They encourage people to practice social distancing, to wear a mask, do all those other things, but all the restaurants, all the resorts are open, Mm -hmm. so... They're not telling people to stay home. Yeah. So, you know, I think as long as you're safe and you're not out there at some big party without a mask doing stupid things, then I think that it's okay to go do things on a limited basis. And the Mm -hmm. thing is, we've been working from home for six months now. It feels (laughs) like forever. Stuff. Yeah. And it's pretty unlikely that we will be going back to work before next year. So I get it. We're all in the same boat. But... I think this was necessary for our sanity. <laughs> Seriously. I, I've only been to Disney once. I'd never went to Disneyland when I was in California, but I went to Disney World when I was in, like, fourth grade with my aunt and uncle. Yeah. Um, and they took down my favorite ride. I mean, they took it down forever ago. But like Wait, the, what was your it, ride? The Mr. Toad's Wild Ride was my favorite ride. That's still there. Not at Disney World. Oh, they, yeah, okay. That's the only one I've been to. So That's the best. I mean, it's, like, not even really that fun of a ride. I just really liked the movie. I liked uh, the book when I was growing right. up. Right. <laughs> and so I loved that ride, and then they... And I wrote it when I was there in, like, fourth grade, but now that that's not there anymore at Disney World. But I, did you do the Tower of Terror? That's so... I can't do that. <gasps> I can't do the big roller coasters. I can't do the Tower of Terror. I basically said no. Um, I did go on Splash Mountain. Yeah. And, um, like, the Big Thunder, those ones uh-huh. I did. But I can't do Everest. I can't do the Rock and Roller Coaster. I can't do Tower of Terror. And I can't do I don't do even know what Mountain. Everest or Rock and Roller Coaster is. Big roller coasters, big scary Uh, roller coasters, and I just pass on those. And luckily, you know, we had a group of us, so my partner was able to go on it with his other friends and family. That's cool. Normally, I'm just like, I'm not doing this. Bye. (laughs) Sorry. I love a roller coaster. I can't do it. It just makes me like nauseous and violently ill. Oh, yikes! (laughs) Big pass on that one. (laughs) Um, Into the main topics for the week. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the appeal for Scott Peterson. Yeah. So you heard about that, and you were the one that I think forwarded me the message when I was traveling, and you were like, oh, my God, look at I this. Know. So Scott Peterson, we referred to him in our episode seven, which was one of our very first episodes of mm-hmm. the show. We talked about Scott Peterson and Chris Watts together in that episode. So if you're interested in a more detailed analysis of the case, go back and listen to that episode. But Scott Peterson this week just got an appeal on his penalty portion of his case. So just Mm -hmm. to make that clear, he was found guilty in a court of law of first-degree murder of his wife, Lacey Peterson, back in 2002. And he was found guilty of second-degree murder of his son, Connor, during that Mm -hmm. same time period. And he was sentenced. I can't believe it was 2002. That's so long. Right? He was sentenced in 2005 to the death penalty. And as we all know, there is a moratorium on death penalty in the state of California, so there's pretty. Uh, it's very unlikely that he will be put to death, but mm-hmm. he has been appealing that as well as his ability to get a fair trial 
because of the publicity that was surrounding this case. Mm-hmm. So this went to the California State Supreme Court, and they basically overturned the penalty portion only. They determined you got a fair trial. The media frenzy surrounding this case did not impede your ability to get a fair trial. So they upheld the guilty verdict. Correct. Okay. Um, And the thing is, they had moved the trial 90 miles away from Modesto to Mm -hmm. another town to try to get away from all the people that would potentially know him so that he could get a fair trial. So they did everything that they could possibly do to ensure that he was having a fair trial. Mm -hmm. But what happened then was during the jury selection for this, they unfairly eliminated certain jurors who were against the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to the death penalty, there are certain things that a jury select that happen during a jury selection. There are a certain number of exemptions where j- attorneys can pretty much disqualify certain people just general basis. They don't have to give any reason whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And then there are a certain number of exclusions or they can get rid of a certain number of jurors based on reason, a specified reason. So when it comes to the death penalty, they are allowed to eliminate in some states people who are opposed to the death penalty if it is believed that they cannot do a fair job and they cannot um, sort of rule as they need to according to the law. Mm -hmm. So someone can say, I am opposed to the death penalty, but I believe I can carry out the law if it is found that he will get the death penalty. Mm -hmm. So those people are allowed to stay, but they got rid of all of those people during this trial. So they said that that was not fair and that if these people had been part of the jury, that there would have been a different outcome. So what's going to happen now is the penalty phase of this particular case will go back to the trial court for re they'll listen to it again. So he's not going to have the ability to be found guilty or not guilty. They're just going to redetermine the penalty portion of his, whether he will get life in prison, which is likely what's going to happen since they're not disputing the guilty or not guilty portion of it. He will most likely get life in prison. But Mm -hmm. the prosecution can ask for the death penalty again and go and do that all over again. So that is an option. Does it have to be unanimous? It has to be unanimous for them to uh, for the the death death penalty. penalty, Right. Okay. Yes. So it's interesting. Um, that that would happen. And Mark Garagos, who is Scott Peterson's attorney, we all know he's kind of a showboater mm-hmm. in the world of trial attorneys, particularly criminal um, defense attorneys. And he is basically believes that this is the first step in exoneration of his client, which I thought was very interesting. An exoneration? I laughed out loud. I was like, <laughs> right. Yeah. So no he basically just thinks that this is the train in movement now and that now the train is rolling, that exoneration is at the end of the, the trip there. Which is cool. Uh, yeah. There's I don't just see that so much evidence, like, and they yeah. linked the hair and the boat, and just there were so many, like, again, if you want details on this and you want to know specifically why we feel as though he, the verdict of guilty was something he deserved, then go listen to episode seven. Mm-hmm. Darcy did a great job of breaking it down on that particular case. What, what, what are your thoughts on that, Darcy, as far as his uh, appeal? I actually had to go back in because, God, there's so many of these guys that, like, I had to be like, okay, which one is he again? Right. So he was the one that was arrested at Torrey Pines, right? Yes. He was from okay. San Diego. He went to yeah. school in San Diego. He, his parents were from La Jolla or lived in La Jolla. Yeah. That's where he grew up. It's a local San Diego guy. But he had moved yeah. up to the, but Modesto after, after high mean, school and done college I up there. I think—so I'm curious about— 
like the legal aspects of it? Like, do they have to go through with a full trial or? It's not a full trial. They're just basically hearing all the evidence. Sorry, a, 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 a sentencing yes, trial. They do. Um, because I'm wondering, well, so are there, is there not like a default judgment? So like if the jury, if there was like a hung jury on a death penalty sentencing trial, would it default to life without or life with or whatever? Because I'm just kind of wondering because it doesn't, they're, they're not going to execute him, right? I mean, the odds no. of that happening are super, super low. Well, they could ask for the death penalty yes. again and they could but, give it to him. It's basically just they have to rehear all the evidence for the penalty portion mm -hmm. of the trial all over again, which could take days. Right. And then the jury will be impaneled once more and they will make a determination. And the prosecution has not determined what they're going to ask for. They've yeah. not set any of the details for the, the future trial for this. But it's my understanding that the prosecution can ask for the can go for the death penalty right. again. And they would have to do the, hear the whole thing over again. And then the jury would have to decide unanimously that they were for the death penalty or against. But they can give options. They can say option one mm -hmm. is the death penalty. Option two is life in prison. Option three is 25 years, mm -hmm. etc. Um, oftentimes they don't do that because they don't want to confuse the jury. They try to make it as yeah. simple as possible. But I really have no idea what they're going to do in this phase. I, I know that in the Joseph D'Angelo case, yeah. the Golden State Killer, because of the moratorium, they took that off the table because they didn't want to confuse well, jurors. They wanted pleaded. to be able to do a plea yeah. bargain and get that done. So... Um, and that was the primary reason that they let yeah. him plead was because of the moratorium yeah. on the death penalty. Otherwise, they would have sought the death penalty and moved forward with that in that particular case. But I thought that was very interesting. Um, the reasoning behind it and what's going to happen is interesting. I think there are people that believe that this is, again, like his attorney said, the start of his exoneration. But there are so many other people who are like, oh, yeah. no. Count me on the other people that are like, it's not an exoneration. He's not going, this is not going to be ultimately overturned and he's somehow going to be acquitted for this. The Innocence Project no. is not going to get involved in this one. He's, in my no. opinion, he's very clearly guilty. My point, I guess, was that they can ask for the death penalty again and maybe the jury will even Correct. grant it again, but the state of California is not likely to execute him. So is Correct. there really a point I in believe... the prosecution asking for that or is there a default right. judgment that would happen like if they were to go through with this, like hypothetically, if they were to go through with the full tr uh, sentencing mm -hmm. trial again and the mm -hmm. jury um, couldn't make up their mind either way, would it default to life there's without? A different, and like, there's a different definition of default judgment. Though, okay. So we don't want to start describing the process as, de oh, as default okay. judgment because that's a different thing in, in the legal gotcha. field, in okay. legal jargon. So there is... Uh, I don't believe that there's sort of a default. Okay. The, the, the prosecution can offer options okay. like life in prison or, you know, death penalty, etc. And I see it being a situation where they go oh. life in prison without parole. End of story. I was going to say, I feel like bare men's he's getting life without because it's a first degree and then also a yeah. second degree of an unborn child. And that's a very touchy subject. It's a very interesting um, mm -hmm. case. And I know that there's a lot of people that are looking at it from all different angles, and I know that there's a lot of legal analysis going on with respect mm -hmm. to this case, and I, I just found it very, very interesting, and I'm curious to see what's going to happen. I almost think that the prosecution will go for the death penalty again as a matter of principle. I'm not sure. It just seems like it would be economically wise to not go for the death penalty again, because it, they're just, I right. mean, the state of California is not going to execute them. I mean... 
Right. And it involves a huge appeals process that's automatic when it comes to the death penalty. So I think from that perspective, it would not be wise for them to do that. Um, And then given the moratorium and what they know now, as opposed Mm -hmm. to back in 2005, that we haven't and we likely won't, I see them doing a a life. That's kind of where I feel like. But But the interesting thing is, like, there is no plea situation. He can't plead. He's already been determined to be guilty, so he can't plead for a lesser sentence. I don't believe he's out of appeals on the criminal, like, on the the trial portion. Like, I believe that they did not grant his last appeal, but there's an option for him to come up with other appeals in the future. I don't think there's anything that says that he's out of appeals. That'll be interesting, too. That that. might come into play. Um, So... That might be an issue, although, uh, again, the Supreme Court just heard this last round of appeal for him, and they denied one and granted the mm-hmm. other. So I, I don't know if he's then precluded from bringing similar or how that works from this point, because California, again, they do things in their own state mm-hmm. form of law. So, um, And I'm not an expert in, in criminal defense or anything like that. So right. I just want to make that like clear. Cases. Like, that's a whole different this Fair. is going off the research that I've done and things that I've looked up online um, with respect yeah. to what's required of this. And again, I did go to law school. I did have to take criminal law as a portion of my law school experience. So I do have that. I would not yeah. call myself an expert, but I would say that I've heard a lot about it and studied it. And <laughs> I got a decent grade in, in criminal law. Well, you're more knowledgeable than the layperson. You're definitely more knowledgeable than me. I mean, I text you with like law questions all the time. Yeah. And like, I did. What is this? What does this mean? I did mock trial. So we had to go through yeah. these cases where we, you know, did voir dire and selected our juries and things like that. And that was really fun. Mm-hmm. So um, it is something that, again, I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination, mm-hmm. but I do know a few things about it. And I don't want to come off as a know it all. So please don't send us. <laughs> mean emails saying that I'm a know-it-all. Well, but if you are an attorney, a, a criminal de- a de- attorney in California, shoot us an email and let us know like yeah. what your thoughts we, are about this. We'll or, make a correction. I mean, what, whatever, any information you could have, yeah, you could share. That would be really interesting because I think this is going to be a really interesting case to follow yeah. the sentencing trial of yeah. this when that when they determine when that's going to be held. What's interesting is I was looking up the Scott Peterson case and kind of doing some research around that and found about this, and I've heard about it in other podcasts before, but they call it familicide or the family annihilator. Mm-hmm. And I was kind mm-hmm. of curious whether Scott Peterson fit into the role of a family annihilator, because I keep hearing this phrase bandied about in certain true crime circles, but... It's usually when a member of a family murders other family members, usually all of the family members, and then the father usually kills himself. So Scott Mm -hmm. Peterson would not necessarily fit into that portion of it, but it's... um, But I think the familicide part is murdering the other family members. The um, the suicide part is not part of the definition of familicide. Right, but the term of annihilating the whole family... Thus, you have that term family annihilator, and it's usually a senior member of the house. They're usually depressed, paranoid. Um, They usually, or they have that in combination with um, an alcohol or drug problem. And they usually kill the other members of the family and then often commit suicide or or force the police to kill them. They usually come from good backgrounds, they're usually successful, smart, with no criminal history, and they're never seen as, quote, the type. They're usually a good provider, a dedicated husband and father, and there's usually some sort of breakdown in the family relationship that happens. And then uh, it's usually hard to catch these guys before it happens because they typically don't show signs. And 95% of the time it's a head of the household and it's a male with some sort of mental illness or there could be cultural issues 
and lifelong relationships are usually part of it. They're very they're very possessive. Um, there could be substance abuse, domestic violence, and all sorts of things of that nature in the heart of this sort of an issue. And many are very educated with mental health problems that are undiagnosed, typically depression, some sort of destructive or self-destructive behavior, substance abuse, as I mentioned earlier. And usually they feel like when things are breaking down in their relationships or they're wronged by their partner, then this is when this sort of family annihilator event happens because there's rage, revenge, or altruism at the, at the heart of most of these mm -hmm. cases, and those are the main motivators for this family annihilator sort of a situation. 50% of family annihilators told other people, including family members, that they had some sort of desire to kill. Whoa. 75% of family annihilators do this with a shooting sort of attack, mm -hmm. according to some studies. And then 50% of the family annihilators end up committing suicide at some that point. When I think of a family annihilator, like the prototypical one I think of is John List. Yes. Right? The guy yes. in Connecticut, he lost his job. He was leaving the house every day and like sitting at the bus stop or something and like pretending that he was working every day. And he came home and he killed his mother, his wife, and his daughter. Yeah. I think he only had one child, right? No. And then he had two sons and a daughter. Okay. So he killed, he killed all of his children and his wife and mother right. all in the same house. And his thing was he didn't want to admit, like, they, were, they had family problems, and he didn't want to admit to his wife that he lost his job. So, like, yeah. that's the prototypical one that, that comes to mind, like, when you read that definition. Yeah. But I do kind of also feel like Scott Peterson falls into that category because he did not want to have a family. Like, he no. eliminated the family. Yeah. You I know mean, what I mean? I definitely think he had mental health issues. I think that there was, he felt like he didn't need to be tried down and she was trapping him and all sorts of other things. I don't know that he fits into the classical definition of a family annihilator. Right. I mean, he, the literal definition. Yes. Yes. Cause he annihilated this family, but like, right. and he's not a John List character. Like there no. wasn't a triggering event, like a loss of a job or no, he just wanted to not have a family and he wanted to have an affair. Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, like, if the spouse cheats on you, that can be something that creates the situation that sort of allows them to be rageful and right. that sort of thing. It doesn't seem as though any of that was there. They had a very idyllic relationship. They met in college. Like, it just seemed like to the outward world, he was ready for a baby. And this was a very exciting, wonderful experience unfolding before them. But secretly, he wanted to be a single dad or a, a not right. single not a dad a but single a single guy. man out yeah. partying and having a good time with different ladies but I don't, I don't know I think Scott Peterson's got a lot of psychopathic tendencies that were like you know lack of remorse um mm -hmm. just a complete twisted person because you know on the one hand you don't want to um have a, a be a father and be married to Lacey but you go find Amber who has a child and you want to have a close, tight-knit mm -hmm. relationship with her, too. Is it just that you don't want to be married? Like, I don't understand the psychology in that. I think it's just, like, yeah, he just, he, I mean, who who really knows? Because how can we put ourselves in the mindset of somebody who literally killed his pregnant wife and unborn child? But, like, I think it is that he, I mean, it does seem like her pregnancy was the triggering event in terms of not that it's in no way yeah. her fault. Yeah. But the triggering event for his violent act yeah. um and that he did not this this was a life-changing event for him that he didn't yeah. want he didn't feel ready and for 
And you didn't feel like you had a choice in the matter either. Maybe, I think. yeah. And maybe with Amber, because she already had a kid that wasn't his. Yeah. Maybe he, could he walk felt away from more that. comfortable dipping in and out. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting. Whereas you can't do that. But, well, you can, but. I kind of was looking up this phenomena to see what other ones I could find in here. And, you know, before Scott Peterson, there were quite a few other guys who did a similar sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I found this other case, which is very, very similar to the Scott Peterson case, but it has some twists. I don't know if you ever heard of the case of Charles Chuck Stewart. I don't, I don't think the name is like the name is, it sounds so generic. So like, I don't, yeah. the name isn't ringing any bells, but I don't know yet. Well, this guy was born December 18th, 1959 in Boston, Massachusetts. So his father was a car salesman. Mother was a part-time bartender. He was this tall, athletic, handsome, and charming guy. He basically lived with two sisters and three brothers in this very kind of idyllic neighborhood. So like a typical Boston upbringing, it sounds like. Yeah, it was like a a dead-end street. They lived in this Cape Cod-style house and um, just a very, very normal sort of a lifestyle. They all attended Catholic school and it was a very modest upbringing in a very normal type of a neighborhood. There was no indication mm-hmm. that there was anything, you know, mentally triggering for any of the kids in this family. They had a very normal upbringing. He played sports. Evidently, he was a basketball player and a baseball player, but he was not all that great at them. He was just kind mm-hmm. of average, if not a little bit below average. But he was a stereotypical guy in that time period in the Boston area, right? In Boston. Yeah, so, but then he decides in high school that he would rather go to the Northeast Metropolitan Regional Vocational High School in Wakefield. And if you know anything about that, it's just north of Boston. It's a school that teaches trades like repair, pipe fitting, cosmetology, and academic subjects are taught in alternating weeks. So where I come from, they don't really have these, at least not, not that I was aware of. It wasn't really a thing at my high school either. Because I very much grew up in an area where you went to college after high school. Yeah, yeah. But there's there's certainly other places in Birmingham where that was a bigger thing, yeah. Yeah, I just, I wasn't aware of those sorts of situations. Mm-hmm. I was aware of alternative high schools, but I don't know if that's the same thing. It's not and the I, same. I don't really know what they taught at those schools and if it was the sort of thing where they were teaching them trades so that they could go out into the real world. And it wasn't immediately clear in any of the research papers whether it was his choice to go there or whether he'd kind of been booted from regular school because maybe his grades were poor or he just determined it wasn't for him. I don't know. It didn't say. My my understanding, and I'm just making an assumption, is so an alternative high school is where you would typically have um somebody with behavioral issues mm-hmm. that that needed to be removed from like a general class right dynamic and they would have like an individualized learning program but they would still be taught the same like academic curriculum right and then if you have a vocational um school that is more where you would learn a trade so where you're not necessarily being prepared to go to college which is how like you and i think of high school now but do they um, choose to go there or are they forced uh, you can. to go there like I just that's I think what you can choose to go there. Yeah. More clear on. Um, I don't necessarily case, think it means you have like behavioral issues or anything. No. Yeah. In any case, he wasn't really into studying, and his mm-hmm. sophomore year is when they said he decided he was going to go there, and he went into culinary arts. That's what he decided he was going to okay. go into. He wanted to be a cook. So he spent every other week in the school's kitchen and helping run the restaurant that was run by the school called the Breakheart Inn. His instructors say they remember him as being a very good cook who expressed no desire to go to college. 
He was a good kid, mm-hmm. very happy by all accounts, but just not really into the whole academic thing, and that's fine. Like, no mm-hmm. judgment there. Um, a lot less debt. Yeah, no. Anyway, um, he ends up graduating from high school and goes into food prep. In 1977 is when he graduated and got a job with this Italian restaurant called Driftwood. And it's no longer in business, so you can't go look it up. But during this time, he met this young woman named Carol Damati. And she was a college student. She was attending Boston College at the time and working part-time at the same restaurant as a waitress, which, again, is not unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, Carol kind of fell instantly in madly in love with Charles. They called him Chuck. But okay. her dad was a bartender at the same restaurant that they both worked at. And he took an instant dislike to Charles. He knew something was up. Yeah, he was like, I don't like this guy. And the thing is, it's my understanding from doing the research that he was very charming and kind of a ladies' man. So I'm sure that the dad, being the bartender, noticed it and saw these sorts of things happening on the side and was like, yeah, no, not for my daughter. Well, and he also probably saw like how this guy interacted with other female workers like yep. when his daughter wasn't around. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, in the meantime, though, Charles was telling everyone that he was a college student, too. That he hmm. had attended Brown University on football scholarship and dropped out due to knee injury. So, no, he did not go to Brown. He'd never played football, but he was telling people that he did. I mean, if you're going to make up um, where you're going to college, I mean, Brown's a pretty good one. Yeah. Um, I mean. I don't know. He basically also told them that he graduated from Salem State College in Salem, Massachusetts. But and he was putting this on his resume and fully putting it out there that he had attended these schools and he Yikes. had never been to Brown at all. And he had applied to Salem State and gra- um, never graduated, though he dropped out after two months. OK, but he freely told people, yeah, this was part of my experience. I'm a college boy. So he like felt inferior and wanted to fit in with all of these. Yeah, upper crust. he could have yeah. cared less about academic academia. But in any case, around this time. Charles and Carol became a regular couple. She was really fun and outgoing and friendly and very happy. And Charles began to be known in this relationship as more of the quiet, reserved, and introverted one. I was like, hmm. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Um, Carol completed college and went to law school before practicing tax law. Wow. So she was a smart cookie. She wasn't just some average gal yeah she knew what she wanted and she got it and went out and did that that's very impressive in, right in 1981 charles quit working at the restaurant and applied for a job at caucus and sons i don't know if it's caucus or cacus i don't know how to pronounce it uh, but it's a fur store in boston okay and he basically told them that he had trouble with his legs and standing all day was too hard for him and so he wanted to switch careers okay and I was like, how is retail any different? Like, yeah. you're on your feet in retail, too. Yeah. Maybe it was a chair. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what his situation was at that place. But his bosses considered him an all-around great guy, and he was very well-liked by both his employers and the sta- other staff at the fur salon. Um, from the outside, things looked to be great for Carol and Charles. They married in 1985, and they bought a house in Reading, Massachusetts. And then by 1989, Carol finally gets pregnant. And they start looking for clothes and furniture, and Charles had worked his way up to a manager at the first store, so they're making some cash. 
And she's an attorney. She's a tax attorney, so she's making some good money. And it's my understanding that he made in excess of $100,000 a year as a manager at this first store, which is a lot of money. So here's this... In 89, yeah. Here's this kid from a middle, lower class family who was starting out in the culinary industry, making approximately $4 an hour, and all of a sudden he's living this very nice affluent mm-hmm. type of a lifestyle in a nicer neighborhood with an attorney wife and a nice car and his car phone and he's really kind of living a, a very kind of extravagant lifestyle yeah he was very happy with the situation it appeared from the outside they didn't seem like they had any problems and the baby was due in december 1989 okay. so they were preparing for that getting all the furniture and the clothing for the baby um but we all know that these sorts of things are rarely what they seem on the outside mm-hmm. because Lacey and Scott seemed like the ideal happy couple as well. And we all know what happened with that. Uh, fast forward to October 23rd, 1989. The couple is driving home from Lamaze classes at Brigham and women's hospital in the Boston area. And I'm not clear as to whether he took a wrong turn, but he was from the area. He knew the bad neighborhoods. He knew the good neighborhoods like the back of his hand. There was no reason why he should have taken a wrong turn. But he ended up driving mm-hmm. home through Roxbury and through a very kind of um, more run-down neighborhood and one that was reportedly known for violent activity, including drive-by okay. shootings, robberies, Ooh. things of that nature. So it was a more high-crime area. And while they waited at a stoplight, Stewart recalled that a black gunman with a raspy voice forced his way into the car and ordered them to drive through Mission Hill to rob them. He then shot Carol in the head and Charles in the stomach. Mm -hmm. However, Charles managed to drive away and called 911 from the car phone. Mm -hmm. So the CBS show, interestingly enough, Rescue 911, just happened to be filming in the area that night, and they got some pretty dramatic footage of Boston Emergency Medical Services rescuing this couple and pulling them out of the car. Now, why this raspy gunman would have shot her in the head and him in the stomach seems a little bit shady to me but again we'll just continue with the story and and see how it unfolds unfortunately though carol died just hours later at around 3 30 a.m on october 24th she succumbed to her injuries it would just you can get shot in the head and and survive very often it just is too much Mm -hmm. but doctors delivered the baby via c-section but it had suffered trauma from the shooting and oxygen drop oxygen deprivation and died 17 days later they named him christopher Charles, meanwhile, had undergone significant surgery. I believe he had to go through two different surgeries, and he spent six weeks in the hospital. His was legit, you know, pretty serious as well. Um, In the meantime, though, police were Mm -hmm. on the scene, and Charles gave them a very crystal clear account. He seemed very calm, collected, cool, and he was even boasting to friends and family about how good his memory was when he was describing the man who had allegedly robbed them and shot them. Why would you brag about that? I don't know, because that's just the kind of man he was. Yeah. But he repeated the exact same story over and over in vivid detail, right down to the stripe on the sleeve of the gunman's running suit, and how the mm. man reached into his jacket for the gun, etc., like, and shot them. Like, it just, it's not the sort of stuff you would usually have the, that kind of recall to tell people about. Right. Um, a little rehearsed, maybe? Yeah, yeah, a little bit too detailed. 
And he also composed like very detailed and extensive messages to his wife for the funeral, saying things like, good night, sweet wife, my love, God has called you to his side. Um, and then, in our souls, we must forgive this sinner because he would too, implying that God would forgive this man and they have to forgive him too. A little thick, maybe? Yeah, yeah, but everything was not seeming completely kosher at this mm-hmm. scene. Um, then, January 4th, 1990, some months after the incident, Charles's brother Matthew reveals an awful truth to the police. Hours later, Stewart's car was found abandoned on the Tobin Bridge in Chelsea. There was a note attached that says he was, quote, beaten by the accusations and sapped of strength. His body was found in the Mystic River January 5th, so the next day. Hmm. At this point, though, police began to unravel the mystery and all the collateral damage that would come from Charles Stewart's twisted lies starts to happen Friends began to come forward saying that months before his wife's death, Charles complained that his wife had him, that his wife had, quote, the upper hand in their marriage. So, oh no, how terrible. Playing back to that family annihilator when, like, uh-huh. they feel like their role is threatened and something of that nature. So, again, we we're starting to play into those elements of the, he feels like he's somehow wronged. Mm-hmm. They also noted that he had pushed for an abortion when Carol got pregnant. And he was irritated Hmm. about this and worried that she wouldn't go back to work after the baby and their income would drop drastically. So there's that financial reasoning behind that. So he was at no time concerned for her. No. He even asked friends to help kill his wife. And I think, I'm not sure if they just played it off as like, oh, he's just joking. Or if they were like, oh my gosh. But none of them reported it to the police family members were also sought out to help with this and including his brother who just kind of assumed it was an insurance scam because he'd been asked to take a bag of possessions from the car and drop it into the river so this was one of his younger Mm -hmm. brothers that was asked for this and in the meantime though charles had pretty much concocted this really shady and completely random story about a black dude to throw the police off the trail so Mm -hmm. evidently this also unleashed a torrent of racial passion and tremendous sympathy for Charles as the lone survivor of this sort of a thing, this vicious attack against him and his family. Um, But in the meantime, he's unleashing all these awful, terrible things. And I think that there, this neighborhood and during that time period in history, Boston was known for having a certain amount of violence in certain communities. And I think he took advantage of that. And was like, mm-hmm. I can distract them from me if I say it was this angry black man with a gun. Yeah. And the police just bit into it, hook, line, and sinker, and went and started looking because Charles gave them a very detailed description of this fake guy. Mm-hmm. But by January 4th, Matthew told police about his part in the incident, and rather than face the music, Charles committed suicide from jumping off, jumping off the bridge. Into the Boston so the Harbor. same day that his brother comes forward is when he commits suicide? Yeah. He basically went hmm. earlier that day, saw his attorney, and decided he just couldn't live anymore. Hmm. And police are starting to kind of piece things back and looking back in the months prior to it when friends suggested that greed was the motive for the tragic turn of events that had happened in his life. And... You know, essentially, as I mentioned earlier, Charles had gone from this $4 an hour job as a cook to a manager at a fur salon and was bringing in a huge paycheck. He had this gone from a blue collar family 
to this life of affluence and he didn't want to go back to being poor. And I think that he felt that his wife, the lawyer, you know, they had this comfortable life. They had a car phone. They had a nice car. They had a gorgeous house, a pool, a jacuzzi. And he felt like if she stopped working, that this was going to go away. Mm-hmm. So he felt threatened in some way, which and is ridiculous. There's no indication that she intended to stop working at any of this. Um, there may have been some indication that she didn't want to go back to work. Okay. I don't think that's any reason to kill somebody, right? No, no, no. I, I, yeah, no, of course not. I just, it seems like that kind of was more of a worry for him. There may have any... been some indications that she okay. didn't want to go back to work after the baby was born. But, okay. yeah, that's her right. Right. Um, but even with all of the, the prosperity that they had, Charles always wanted more. And the neighbors claim he wanted to own a restaurant and had been attending college courses to teach him how to do this. Investigators speculate that he wanted to get his hands on life insurance policies from his wife. Hmm. And he was set to collect at least $182,000. Jesus. So I guess that's the cost of his wife's life, which is ridiculous. I guess there were some accounts that there was as much as $400,000, but there is no indication that he ever really collected that much money. Yeah, it usually takes a little while for those to pay out. No. So... His family also couldn't imagine how this man with no criminal past or record could have devised such a crazy scheme. And they all were denying it, even though the brothers had known about it. The two of his brothers had known that he'd been asked to help. So psychologists who studied this case sort of disagreed and pointed to signs and symptoms of classic psychopath behavior, antisocial personality, no remorse his propensity for lying and his ability to deceive everyone. So they're like, no, 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 this guy's a classic psychopath. Um, But there was also some discourse about his family because everyone claimed that they knew everything and they covered it up. They covered up the crime. They covered up Hmm. for their sons. They didn't want to tell police. And even when the brother Matthew went forward, the family was not happy that he had gone forward with that information. And they were sort of like, it's our family business. We keep it in the family. Yeah. Yeah, and that doesn't work with murder. Yeah, there's some indication, too, that the brothers were just thought that it was more of a insurance scam sort of thing and that he wasn't actually going to go forward with it. But I don't know. The family members went to funerals. They cried with the family. They you know, knew Charles was involved and they still visited the family and were pallbearers. And it's just it's pretty gross. Like, mm-hmm. you know, all this, you know, these guys were involved and you try to cover it up by acting like everything is normal, which is just kind of yeah. gross. And then neighbors started to come forward, noting that Charles had been coming and going at all hours on weekends and staying out late and that Carol had complained on numerous occasions that he was not coming home till very late. So things were not Hmm. as they seemed. Um, Charles also started talking to a 22 year old woman who worked at the first shop he managed. Surprise, surprise. There's always right. This young woman, Deborah Allen, was a recent graduate of boss. Excuse me. This is coincidental. She was a recent graduate of Brown University. Very attractive, Mm -hmm. and they went out. He gave her a bunch of gifts, and after the shooting, she started calling him at the hospital on his request and putting calls to him on his credit card. So it's also evident that when he tried to take things to the next level after he left the hospital, that she broke it off. But she never mentioned any of that to police either. She wasn't very forthcoming about her relationship with him either. She may have been scared. I mean, she's... A baby. She's 22. Yeah, well, I, I I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But then there's the whole issue of the mysterious black gunman. Because the police actually found a man. 
Of course they did. And Boston, of course they did. And because there had been a lot of drug-related shootings in the September and October area in Boston's black neighborhoods, he made special mention this. Charles made special mention of this with his co-workers at the fur shop. So there's evidence that he was trying to, like, set this scene for this. Before all this went down? Yep. And he seemed to lack all emotion and was... This was noted by the authorities. They were like, you know, this guy doesn't seem depressed, down, sad, and granted everyone expresses their grief in different ways, but his story was just a little too detailed, too precise, and too factual. There's no grief at all, and it just seems very suspicious to them that two weeks within his hospital release, he starts buying things like a pair of diamond earrings, a brooch, and a brand new Nissan Maxima, and the police speculate that he bought the jewelry for Miss Allen, but she denied ever receiving anything. So who knows oh. what happened to that and whether he actually did give it to her or maybe there was somebody else. We don't know. But the night that he killed himself, police were actually watching him very closely. He checked into a hotel and requested a 4.30 a.m. wake-up call. Then the following morning, he drove into Boston. This was the day after his brother confessed to the police his involvement in this that he'd gone to the scene to collect the jewelry and the gun and mm -hmm. take the evidence from the car. And then after he drove into Boston, Charles stopped at this bridge and turned on his hazard lights and jumped. Now, until they found his body at 7 the next morning, many people still thought this was like a hoax. This was some sort of a weird scam. It was, a, you know, it wasn't real is what they thought. Just, that's like how, that he faked his death or yeah. something? This guy was such okay. a liar and such a conniver and such a manipulator that they thought that he had faked it until they actually found his body. Wait, but you said the police were watching him closely? How did he even... Well, they knew what hotel he was in. They knew, they, they were oh. kind of following his movements, but they weren't, like, tailing him in a police car or anything like that. I they gotcha. They were just kind of okay. monitoring his phone calls and things of that nature so that they could... They were just making sure they knew where he together. was. And they definitely... I think they had suspicions, but they had a suspect in custody as well. Right. Okay. So I think that they were just trying to chase down all the leads to their fullest, and he ended up doing this before they were able to chase down all the leads and, and put things together. Gotcha. But, um, okay. Or exonerate this gentleman that they pulled in as a suspect. But I'm going to get to that in just a second. In the meantime, in 1991, his brother, Charles's brother, Matthew Stewart, was indicted for obstruction of justice and insurance fraud. He pled guilty in 1992 and got three to five years. He was released from prison in 1997 and then was put back in prison for cocaine trafficking. And then se September 3rd, 2011, they found him dead from a drug overdose. So he was kind hmm. of an unsavory character himself. Um, Carol's family started a scholarship fund in her name. And by 2006, it had awarded, awarded $1.2 million to 220 students. Wow. Her family claims that she wouldn't want to be remembered as a victim, but as a woman who left a legacy of healing and compassion, which I think is pretty awesome as well. Mm -hmm. um, but... Additionally to this, despite the fact that there was a confession, the police actually ended up spending a lot of hours searching for this fake assailant prior to mm -hmm. the suicide because he got out of the hospital within six weeks of the shooting, but there was still um, a good couple of months before he committed suicide in which they chased down this man named Willie Bennett, William Willie Bennett, who fit the description that Charles gave. And Charles actually ID'd him in a lineup as well. Hmm. So it was like, that's the guy that did it, which seems insane to me. You could just make that up, find a dude, and get him convicted and thrown into jail. Like, I, I imagine this is something that happens frequently, but, like, it's crazy to me that that's a thing. 
Yeah. Um, but the case collapsed January 3rd, 1990, when Matthew Stewart confessed. But, however, despite the confession and the exoneration of Willie Bennett, this heightened racial tensions in Boston, including mm-hmm. the police were doing these random stop and frisks and doing a lot of racial profiling in the city. And this kind of no. a lot of the residents feel like it was like a war zone. Like, I'm sure it was awful. Um, and there was a lot of tension related to this. And then when they found out that it was not even real, I'm sure that created even more tension. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were certain people that felt like the police just weren't doing a very good job tracking down leads and like doing what they were supposed to do to look at things in a logical way and determine that this couldn't be real. Right. That Willie was not really the, the person that did this. They didn't they really just kinda, investigate it. They just took yeah. this white man's word. Yeah. as truth and then went out and arrested a black man. He was in that neighborhood and yeah. this is how it was and this is what happens when you go into neighborhoods like that as an affluent white couple. So mm-hmm. I think that really just did terrible things for racial relations in Boston at that time. But ultimately Willie was exonerated but it was the sort of experience for him too where like he as a person and as a black man loses all hope and faith in the criminal justice system sure. because that's you know this, this sort of thing happens to you. Yeah. And granted, he, I think, I read an article that he um, did, was, did an interview with as well, and he was like, you know, he was the first to admit, hey, I wasn't, like, the cleanest guy back then. I did bad things. I did some criminal activity myself. I wasn't innocent completely, but I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Well, and there's know, no I, reason for him to have been picked up for it either. And he was like, I did my time in jail and, you know, I served my time and I got out and I tried to make a better life for myself. But it's sort of this sort of a thing really puts a shade on the criminal justice system that makes people lose faith in it. And I think that this is very timely mm-hmm. now because this is what's going on now in a much more drastic and severe way is people have lost faith in the criminal justice system and the police's ability to do their job and to serve and protect. And Mm -hmm. now it's just like gotten to the point where it's exploded. But I think this is one of the precursors that started, you know, 30 years ago with this sort of a thing. Right. And it just really highlights right. the fact that it is extremely important to investigate these things and chase down all the leads for situations like this because there are probably many instances and you still have instances where white people will call the police and say that a black person committed a crime. Right. Like, I think you could probably draw a line from his false statements and his murder of his wife and and making up this story about this black man in Boston to social unrest and and racial unrest in Boston Mm -hmm. in 89. But this is, uh, this is something that's been going on, you know, since, I mean, since forever. So, I mean, I mean, the thing is like, you can definitely point the finger at like things that like escalate it, but just like the undercurrent of this is something that is just a constant thing in our country and we're seeing that right now but if they had like investigated this case properly from the start they would have seen how much this guy lied on multiple instances and was having an affair and talking to somebody else and just doing all this sleazy stuff and lying on his resume and just there were so many things that like just make him into this very unsavory character that if they would have just done a little bit of criminal background check they would have figured that out And then there was also some speculation in the story, which I thought was interesting, that she hadn't died 
in the way and at the speed that he thought she was mm-hmm. going to. And she ended up lunging at him as he was attempting to shoot himself in a very kind of innocuous sort of a way so that he would only have a minor injury. And she grabbed his arm again, and he ended up shooting himself in a way that injured himself more drastically. So uh, she had some kind of burst of strength or something right before he shot or tried to get him to stop shooting himself. I don't know, but that's why his injury ended up being more severe because he had planned just to give himself just through the flesh and just a little flesh injury and it ended up being more severe. That's interesting. And and back but. to the investigation part. I mean, what do we say all the time? You, The first thing that you do is investigate the spouse. I mean, that's... Yeah. Like, anybody knows that. So, like, the fact that they didn't do that is just... Yeah, it's Shoddy completely absurd work. that they just would be like, oh, sure, he was in a bad neighborhood, so obviously it was a black guy. I mean... But I do also think that this guy fits into the classic definition of a family annihilator. It definitely sounds like it. Right down to killing himself. The financial issue, you know, the child Mm -hmm. coming, um, loss of control, you know, every every sign points to him being sort of a classic family annihilator. Well, the only thing I would say that maybe kind of differs is... In the definition you read earlier, you said there's usually some kind of underlying mental health issue that isn't observed. And this guy seems like it was pretty. Well, guys, yeah, this guy seems like it was pretty obvious and on the surface with like his life was lying about his status. Like that's all he did. So it seems like you could have. Yeah, but I think we all know people that don't necessarily tell the truth all the time. And I think in in back then in that time period, especially. I think people just would just kind of play it off and be like, oh, that's just him, you know, telling those little white lies and things like that. There's white lies. And then there's I think there's a threshold for that when you start to lie about who you are and things that you've accomplished in your life. And it's a common thing that you need to make yourself better because maybe you're intimidated by your wife's status or what have you. I think there like I think that crosses a threshold into dangerous territory because then you start getting resentful of your spouse. Yeah. You know. But I, I think he tended to hide his aggression or issues right. well. Which is very scary. And I think that that happened quite frequently in that time period, which is why so many of them got away with right. a lot of the stuff they did, like John List. Yeah. But anyway, let's go ahead and wrap it up. If yeah. you, unless you have anything else nope. to add, we will definitely keep you guys updated in the future with respect to the Scott Peterson appeal. Yeah. And we are going to go ahead and wrap the episode up. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can send us an email at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. We usually respond back with a nice little note. If you send us an email and sometimes we'll share them on the show, but we love your suggestions. Please Shoot us some comments, uh, corrections, anything you want to add. Social media, Darcy? Yeah, we are at the BFD Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram, so we'll be posting updates about uh, Scott Peterson and everything there as well. Yeah, and please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye! Bye, guys.